Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, July the 20th, 2022. It is currently 10 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Well, if you have the ability, if you could open a Bible right now, whether it's electronic, actual physical Bible, whatever you can do, if you can open a Bible right now, I would like you to open the Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 17. The book of Revelation Revelation chapter 17, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. We read these words. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away into uh, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Listen carefully. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. I want you to hear that again. Revelation 17, verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Let me ask you a very important question. Who is Babylon? What, what, what does this Babylon represent? Who is it? How do we understand it? What is the identity of mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth? Who is the, what is the identity of mystery Babylon? How do you identify mystery Babylon? What is your theory? What is your view? What do you base it on? That is what we're going to talk about this morning. And what I'm going to do here is we're going to look at uh, some different concepts. I'm going to point you in the direction of a series of podcast episodes that you can listen to. And hopefully this is going to be somewhat informative. Some of this is simply going to be pointing you in a certain direction so that you can hear a certain point of view, but I hope that this turns out to be a good conversation. So let's do this. This is very important. Many of you who listen, you think you know exactly who Babylon is. I mean, you like mystery Babylon, it's this, and you're going to say it dogmatically. You're going to make your argument and very, 
Basically, very little can be said to convince you otherwise. But here's what I want you to do. No matter what your view is of Babylon, no matter how you identify Babylon is, no matter what you think the identity of Babylon is, I want you to set aside all that you think, all that you are convinced of, and I want you to ask yourself a very important question. Right? Are you listening? I need you to get really close to the speaker, right? I need, you, I need you to reach up and push down on the headphone and push it even closer to your ear. How did you arrive at that conclusion? How did you identify Mystery Babylon? Now, I really want you to think about this because what your, your first reaction is going to be, I did so from the Bible. I did so from studying the Bible. Did you? Or did you identify it because someone, you listened to a sermon and they told you who Babylon was? Or did you set aside all of the sermons, use a Bible study method to study mystery Babylon, and based off extensive hours of study and research, you came to a conclusion, wait for it, based on... Scripture alone. I really want you to think about that because you're going to say, I heard a sermon. And in this sermon, I know you heard a sermon, but that's not you studying the Bible for yourself. I just think a lot of times there are certain issues in the Bible that people have come on, come to conclusions on, not really based off Scripture. It's based off listening to a, a sermon series. People love to go to a sermon series to try to draw a conclusion. And a lot of times people say, look, I'm really trying to figure this out or I'm trying to figure this out. Does anybody know a book? Does anybody know a sermon series? And I'm always, I always kind of, my first reaction is always like, well, why don't you start with the text first? Start with the scripture first. Do a a thematic study or a topical study. I could do all the different Bible study methods. Why don't you use one of the Bible study methods, right? Which is, again, basically observation. Observe everything the Bible could possibly say in regards to the identity of Mystery Babylon. Write everything down. Then, after you're like, okay, here, I've gathered all the information. I've observed all the information. I don't know for sure if I can come to a dogmatic conclusion, so I'm still a little confused, but this is what I'll do. Now I'll start listening to sermon after sermon after sermon. I'll start reading book after book after book, and guess what you'll be able to do? If you know all the biblical information, this is what you can do. You can stop and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That doesn't work. I know that because I've looked at all the scriptures. So many Christians are not willing to do that. And I want to just demonstrate today, my only goal today is to demonstrate that even though pastors love to stand behind the pulpit and say, hey, Revelation 17 and 18, yeah, a lot of people act like it's confusing. A lot of people act like that there can be no certainty. But let me tell you, it's very simple. It's super simple. It's very easy. There should be no confusion. Whenever I hear a pastor say that, I, I, I have to be honest with you. I just want to start laughing out loud. Like if I'm sitting in, if, if I was sitting in the pew, I would almost want to start laughing out loud going, give me a break. I would not do that because it would be disrespectful and wrong. But inside, I'm just laughing going, who are you fooling? You may be fooling all these people around us, but we both know it. I'm looking at you. You know, it's not that simple. 
So many, I, it, one of the things that drives me crazy is that pastors feel a need to stand behind the pulpit and tell everyone, other people say it's complicated. Other people can't figure it out. But I want you to know, it's really simple. It's really easy. That drives me crazy because you are, listen, you are, and my, this is what I feel is happening. You are keeping people from the truth. No, I'll say, I'll state it this way. You are substituting truth for certainty. You're giving the people a sense of certainty at the expense of truth. What I have discovered in Bible study all of these years and all the Bible colleges have gone to and all the seminaries and all the, all the education that I have pursued is that there are so many things in the Bible. There are not dogmatic definitive answers, no matter how much pastors want to claim there is, because they preach certainty at the expense of truth, because truth is, you know what? Here's the reality. We got 2000 years of church history. We got about 65 different possible interpretations. Nobody agrees on it. It's very difficult if you set aside all the commentaries, all the sermons, all the books, and just look at the text itself, and you just write down only what the text says, sometimes you'll be left with, wait a minute, this is not near as certain as the sermons I have heard preached, because you went to church, and they substituted truth for a sense of certainty, for a sense of simplicity, There are things in the Bible that are not that easy to figure out. There are things in the Bible that you're just left with, man, if I just take the scripture alone, I don't know, can I be that dogmatic? Can I be that certain? Now, I understand you don't like that uncertainty. I don't like that uncertainty. I know you want answers. I want answers. I know you would prefer it to be dogmatic. So would I. But remember the way church history has worked. You could either rely on the authority of the church to give you that certainty where the church could offer a dogmatic interpretation or a dogmatic decree and say, this is the truth. This is what you believe. If you do not, you are anathema. But over time, the idea was, nope, the church does not have that authority to do so. The church doesn't have the authority to give a the only interpretation. The church cannot just hand out a dogmatic decree. So, we, so the, the authority of the church was rejected. And the argument was, the authority then goes to the scriptures alone. Remember, that's the whole way, if, you, if we could go through all church history, scripture alone, scripture alone, scripture alone. Well, if it's truly scripture alone, well, then sometimes scripture alone leaves you with uncertainty, leaves you with a little bit of, hmm, I'm not so sure what we can do here. Preachers come along and go, uh-oh, we've got to, we, we can't let people be uncertain. We can't let there be confusion. No, no, no. We're going to stand behind the pulpit and substitute truth for certainty. And I'm going to tell them, everyone thinks this is so confusing, but in reality, it's very simple. I cannot tell you. <laughs> oh, I, as we've worked through now the book of uh, Romans, we see we started the book of Romans in 2019. We're in 2022. We're in Romans chapter 10. 
in our study of Romans, how many different sermons or commentaries that we'd read, like, this is one of the most difficult passages, and people have had great problems, and there's been much disagreement. But in reality, it's not that difficult if you look at the. I don't know how many pastors would say, this is one of the most difficult sections of the book of Romans, and people have struggled with it. But in reality, it's not that difficult, or it's not that certain, or it's not that uh, hard to be certain about it. Or they may uh, start the sermon by telling you how difficult the section is, but in the sermon, they they try to remove all of that uncertainty and confusion by being very dogmatic and very like, this is the only way to interpret it. I need you to understand how that works. So when it comes to identifying mystery Babylon, what is your answer? How did you draw that conclusion? And is your certainty simply a substitute for the truth that maybe it's not so clear. All right? Yeah. Are, are we having a good discussion this morning? Are, are you happy that you're listening? Okay, maybe not. Are you ready? Let's let's consider five, five possible identities to mystery Babylon. Five. I, I just I'm just going with five this month. We could probably there's far more. Now, one of them is very one of them you're gonna get very mad at me. Because you're going to be like, what, what, what is this? One, one of them I, I'm going to use, I'm just going to get, tell you, is I'm being very facetious. One of them is very facetious. And if, and, and if you don't understand what that means to be facetious, it's, you're going, I'm going to be basically treating a serious issue with a deliberate, inappropriate humor. I'm going to be flippant to try to prove a point. All right. So one, one of these is very facetious, and I'm going to be trying to prove a point, and hopefully you'll understand why in a minute, okay? And again, part of the reason I'm going to be facetious is just because people are like, no, this is the way you interpret Mystery Babylon. This is the identity of Mystery Babylon. How do you not understand it? And so I'm going to be facetious to go, are you sure? Because I could use that same argument to prove something completely ridiculous. Just stay with me. Are you ready? So here are views on the identity of Babylon. And we are focusing here on the, the five views on the identity of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. That's what we're specifically focusing on. The identity of Babylon, mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. I, I want to make sure I limit the scope of this so that you do not get confused in any way, shape, or form what I'm referring to. So are you ready? View number one, and I'm going to be borrowing a uh, from an article uh, on some of this, I'll be adding my own thoughts. And then, of course, we have audio to, to uh, uh, analyze and review. We got a lot to do. So sit back. We're going to try to get this all done before, before we reach an hour mark. We're at 14 minutes and 33 seconds. So I'm going to do the best I can in the next 45 minutes to really hopefully get you uh, something beneficial. But hopefully you'll take that intro to heart because that, that's really a major point in this. How do you identify the identity of Mystery Babylon? How did you come to that conclusion? And you need to realize that a lot of times in Christianity, you're being given certainty as a substitute for truth. I hope you really, really do realize that because if you do, it helps you not be so manipulated and and think in some cases misled or some cases grabbing on to what you believe is truth, when all it is, is a, well, a facade. It's just certainty. I I hope that's beneficial. Here we go. View number one. View number one of the identity of Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, 18. 
It is, here's view number one, apostate Christendom or apostate church. Apostate Christendom or apostate church. According to this view, the church should be loyal and loving God. But in the end times, it seems to have taken a turn and now aligns itself with ungodliness. This view does not hold that Babylon is a city or that Babylon is a nation. Instead, it views the word Babylon as a religious designation, meaning this woman is like the fallen and evil and wicked nation of Babylon in the Old Testament. So this one does not see Babylon as a real nation or a city, but as just being symbolic, being spiritual, and it points to the apostate Christendom or apostate church. Now I'm going to I'm going to read from a, a Walver Walverd if I can speak his name correctly Walverd and his commentary Revelation this is from page 255 the the position of the woman riding the beast is important according to John Walverd her position as a rider indicates on the one hand that she is supported by a political power of the beast and then on the other hand she is a dominant role and at least outwardly controls and directs the beast now, I don't know if that's super helpful, but again, that just indicates that even in some commentaries, there's a lot of, okay, this could represent this, this could represent this, this could represent control. A lot of questioning what represents what. But according to view number one, this is the apostate Christendom or apostate church. Mystery Babylon is the apostate church. Okay. I, I, some of these we could try to take apart, but but I, I I the goal here is not necessarily to do an extensive study of each one. The goal here is for you to see that there are many different views. According to an article I have here, here are the strengths of that position. The people of Israel were frequent spiritual adulterers. The book of Hosea, as well as Ezekiel, describes the people of Israel as having a connection to God, but instead of following ungodliness. Uh, but instead followed ungodliness. This type of description of God's unholy people should not be a surprising feature in the book of Revelation since it's related elsewhere. So in other words, this idea of being a, can we say it? And I'm just going to be, I'm going to use very blunt language because in the book of Revelation, it refers to this woman as the mother of harlots. It refers to her as, let me see here if I can find the great, um, the judgment of the great whore. So a harlot, a whore. All right. Now that language could take us back to the Old Testament. Again, we could go to Hosea or Ezekiel. I think it's uh, chapter 16 and I think Ezekiel uh, 23. Well, it, where it refers to Israel as basically committing spiritual whoredoms. They were spirit, spiritually, they were a whore. Spiritually, they were adulterers. Spiritually, they were committing spiritual adultery, spiritual fornication, spiritual sin by turning to something other. They were giving themselves over to something other than the true God. They were giving themselves over to the worship of false gods. So because this idea of spiritual adultery, that this idea of being basically uh, being a whore spiritually because you've given yourself over to a false religion, 
since these concepts show up in the Old Testament, the argument is, well, since Mystery Babylon is referred to as a, a, a harlot, a whore, well, then this is referencing the church that has apostatized and have basically become guilty of spiritual adultery. That is the strength or that is an argument for how to interpret or how to identify Mystery Babylon and Revelation chapter 17 and 18, right? That's, that's at least one view, right? And that's at least one strength. Here's another possible strength. The New Testament church as a virgin. The New Testament seems to describe the church as a virgin that is destined to be joined to her husband, Jesus Christ. This would be a future event, but it, but it was warned, uh, but it was warned against spiritual adultery. I'll, I'll give you two scriptures here. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. All right, uh, I'm in 1 Corinthians going, that makes absolutely no sense. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may pre present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The church, the true church, is seen as a chaste virgin that is to be presented to her husband Christ, right? Then we have James 4.4, 4, James 4.4, 4, where we read these words, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Now the adultery and adulteress, adulterers and adulteresses seems to be connected with, well, basically giving yourself over to the world, friendship with the world. You're committing a spiritual adultery. So the strength of this idea that mystery Babylon is the apostate Christendom or apostate church is number one, the people of Israel were frequently accused of spiritual adultery and basically, you know, referenced basically as being, you've become like whores, unfaithful. And Babylon is referred to as the great harlot and a whore. So it fits that this could be referring to someone who is guilty of spiritual whoredom, spiritual adultery, and that's the apostate church. Another strength of this position would be the New Testament church is described as a virgin, pure, chaste, there for Christ. So the true church is the, the, the virgin, the, the apostate church is the spiritual whore. That, that, that contrast fits perfectly with this identity and that interpretation. Number three, another strength of this view. The prostitute seems to be riding the beast in Revelation 17, verses 3 through 4. Let's look at it. Revelation 17, 3 through 4. I know we've already read it once. But that's okay. Revelation chapter 17, 3 through 4. Look carefully. Revelation 17, 3 through 4. So he carried me, uh, yeah, Revelation 17, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Please note that she sits upon the beast. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Please note the word fornication is, is showing up. Fornication. There's some strengths to this view. There's some strengths here. So let's continue. 
Revelation 17, three through four, John sees a scarlet beast and on it, the prostitute rides. The beast was described by some as the revived Roman empire in Revelation 13. And it was the center of the world government of Gentile power in the day. The woman is riding the beast. She is not the beast itself. Therefore, it is significant that she represents an ecclesiastical power that is distinct from the beast. So if the beast is political power, if the beast is political power, and if the woman is the spiritual prostitute writing it, well, then you kind of have a merging of basically the apostate church, in a sense, controlling the political power, the apostate church controlling the political power, right? So that would, that would possibly, that, that possibly is a strength there. I don't know if you can call it a strength, but it's a possible another help in trying to identify it, all right? Next, what the woman is wearing. The woman wears gold, scarlet, and gems. These are too familiar to the things worn. These are too familiar to the things worn by those in high church positions today. The Pope, cardinals, bishops all wear these types of things. Now, I'm not saying that that immediately says it's the Catholic Church. What I'm saying is it these things do bring to mind some some religious possible dress and attire, which would possibly, again, point to this woman being the apostate or that mystery Babylon, let me state it this way, would be the apostate church. Not saying that's a perfect argument, but I'm just trying to go through all the possible arguments out there. Remember, my job here is just to show you all the different views and all the different arguments, and I'm doing that for a reason, all right? Babylon as the epitome and imposter Christianity. Starting in Genesis 10, the Tower of Babel established the Babylon, the Babylon idea that it was a corrupt view of God. Throughout various passages in scripture, it was clear that Babylon is the name for a great system of religious error. From the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 to the many stories of Babylon in the book of Daniel, there was always there has always been a departure from God when the name Babylon is mentioned. So their argument, if you really follow every time Babylon is mentioned, it usually demonstrates some departure from God and almost setting up a, a different religious system. So this would be another argument that the first view, these are all arguments trying to support the first view that mystery Babylon is the apostate Christendom and apostate church. Right, and I I do like the fact that she is referred to as the great harlot and a whore because there's no question in the Old Testament that you, that when you in a sense turn to a false religion when you apostatize you are committing spiritual whoredom you are basically being a spiritual whore you're being a spiritual adulterer right and that's a that's a that's something that has to be discussed here that i think fits perfectly with mystery babylon being the apostate church also i like the fact that the new testament church seems to be described as a chaste virgin a a, a pure bride um and the apostate church is the spiritual adulteress or adulterer right i think that that's important all right and that and i do think it's interesting that babylon if and this is where it would require extensive research. You could do like a topical study on Babylon, all right? We could do an extensive study on Babylon and then try to see how it's typically mentioned. What are some things connected with it that would fit how to understand Babylon here in Revelation 17 and 18? And then lastly, 
church history of persecution. Sadly, the church has a tradition of persecuting people that disagree with them or who do not align doctrinally. The description of the prostitute being drunk with the people with the blood of people in Revelation 17:6 should not surprise us that the church has lost its way and will begin killing and persecuting people. All right? Now, I think I think that there is a a good argument to be made. Throughout church history, the church has killed people, has persecuted people for different beliefs. That has happened time and time again in church history, and this seems to imply, I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to be careful about how to get into, you know, how to connect this to all the different systems of eschatology. I just think it's very, it's a very good argument that the, the mystery Babylon, Babylon being described in Revelation 17, at least the first view says this is apostate Christendom and the apostate church. And I've given you the different reasons or arguments for this. Number one, the people of Israel were frequently called spiritual adulterers. The New Testament church is a virgin as opposed to the apostate church. The prostitute rides the beast, which I think is interesting because you have now, basically she's representing ecclesiastical power sitting atop political power. The woman's attire, which possibly could bring to light some religious uh, uh, garments and attire. Babylon throughout the Bible seems to reference, well, a, a different religious system, something opposed to the true God. And then the church uh, history of persecution fits perfectly with Revelation 17.6. I will read that. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. Apostate Christianity will always persecute Christianity. True Christianity, I don't think, would ever be killing anybody. Right? Or I'll put it, put it this way. Whenever true Christians start killing, let me state this. Whenever true Christianity starts killing people, it, the, at least in some way, it's apostatizing. It has been corrupted. All right? Okay. Now, that's, that's view number one. These are going to take a long time. I got to try to go fast. All right. View number one is that Mystery Babylon is the apostate Christendom and apostate church. I'm not, please understand, I'm not trying to prove it. I'm just trying to give you the view and then try to give you the strengths of the view. I'm not trying to prove one. Someone's going to start emailing me disagreeing. You need to go back to what I want you to set aside what you think, and I want you to consider these views because I want you to realize that there are many views to interpreting this, right? That's what I'm trying to accomplish this morning, right? Let's go to the second view. View number two, Rome. Mystery Babylon is Rome, all right? The most common view is that Babylon is a reference to the pagan city Rome and the beast which Babylon prostitute rides on represents the Roman Empire, all right? So many will say, and this is a very common view, this represents the quote-unquote pagan city of Rome, all right? And that, that the beast that she is riding represents the Roman Empire, all right? This is view number two. Here are some possible strengths for this view, all right? Uh, here we go. Uh, seven heads. The seven kings are also represented by the seven heads, which consist of five fallen kings, the sixth of which now reigns, and the seventh is not yet come. That's Revelation 17, 9 through 10. This is commonly seen as a reference to a sequence of seven Roman 
emperors. All right? And uh, this that, that view comes from a book uh, uh, called Babylon. Uh, uh, it comes from a book, Dictionary of the Later New Testament and Its Developments, right? And then a, a section on Babylon. So this one, the, just so the argument is that Mystery Babylon as a reference to the pagan city of Rome. The argument here, right, the argument for this is that this that you go down to Revelation 17, 9 through 10, and you get the seven heads, and the seven kings are also represented by the seven heads, which consist of five fallen kings, the sixth of which now reign, and the seventh is not yet come. This is commonly seen as a reference to a sequence of seven Roman emperors. I don't know how that would prove that Mystery Babylon is Rome. I guess... You, you can do whatever you want with that because of time. I don't have time to take all of these apart. Number two, political dominance. Babylon as the great city that rules over the kings of the world is supposed to point to Rome's political dominance. All right, well, she is writing, she is writing the beast, which is somewhat of political power. And if, if she's Rome, then it shows Rome's political dominance. Okay, maybe... Okay, now I the, the these I'm not the the, the first view I, those those fit to me, to me better biblically. A lot of these you have to kind of look and go. Okay, now I got to go look somewhere else. I got to go look in a history book. I got to go look. In other words, I have to leave the text to try to come to this conclusion. I like the conclusions that seem to come from the text. The first view seems that you can support some of its interpretation by going to other parts of the Bible. These you just have to go. Hey, I got to go find a book on the history of Rome or, or the, a list of Roman emperors and how it went down. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that 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 can become, well, that would just prove that no one can interpret the Bible without knowing all of these other things, which then we could, we could get into a discussion about that. But let's continue. Their third argument here for this view that Mystery Babylon is Rome is this. Some of the most popular interpretations are that the beast seven heads are references to Rome as the city of seven hills. All right. Uh, uh, It says support for this view is that Rome did have seven hills, and it gives the name of each one. All right. I won't go through each one, but so, all right. I guess that would be some kind of argument there. Next, um, a mask. The labeling of Rome as Babylon, as the city with seven hills, is said to have saved John and anyone who held the book of Revelation from being punished by Rome because a prophecy about the demise of Rome so direct and tragic as Revelation 17 and 18 would surely have caused persecution. All right, so this is the argument that that the the New Testament writer was like, hey, okay, I've got to I got to disguise this, right? If I if I don't disguise this, then I'm going to be persecuted. Now, you I guess you could argue that God wanted to disguise the meaning so that John would not be persecuted, but I don't know. I mean, hey, hey, you know, when you go into Jerusalem and preach, just preach uh, about some person who died and rose again and their salvation. Just don't mention my name, Jesus, because that could get you in trouble. It just seems that the New Testament never takes the approach of trying to mask something or disguise something out of fear of persecution. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm a good, I'm a fan of this argumentation, but this is what they go on to say. 
Uh, Bruce Metzger writes, and I quote, to say directly that God will destroy imperial Rome would have been, of course, altogether treasonous in the eyes of the imperial authorities. So like a prisoner writing in code from a concentration camp, John characterizes the power of evil as Babylon. So what they're saying is that reality, Babylon is Rome, but you can't talk about the destruction of Rome without being persecuted by Rome. So instead of calling Rome, Rome, we're going to call Rome Babylon. That seems to me would be actually leading to confusion about how to interpret the section that would not be bringing clarity to the section. So I'm not sure I agree with that, that view. Next, clothing and jewelry. The purple and scarlet clothing, Revelation 17, 4, were the clothes worn only by the up, uppermost classes of Roman society, emperors, family, senators, um, etc., uh, additionally, jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls suggests the top of the economic life of the empire. Now, what I, what I love about this is you see others, when they see how the woman is dressed in Revelation 17, again, uh, we have her described in verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. What I love about this is some commentators look at that and go, Roman Catholic Church, that's, that's, that's religious dress, that's religious uh, attire, that's what churches who are liturgical, they dress like this, it, that's what it's referring to. So this is the apostate church or it's the Roman Catholic Church. But then others will read the exact same passage and go, no, 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 no. This is clearly describing Babylon is Rome, and this is describing the dress and the attire of many in the uppermost classes of Roman society. Isn't it amazing that people can read the same verse and come to such drastically different conclusions? So you need to be aware of all of these different issues because you'll sit in a church and the pastor will substitute truth with certainty and keep all of these different views and all of these different questions and all of these different perspectives in many cases away from your hearing or just barely mention them just to say they're all wrong, but don't worry, I've got the truth. I, I mm, That bothers me so much about preaching. Everyone in every church needs to know, hey, there's a lot of confusion in how to identify the mystery Babylon, right? Let's continue. Um, Rome's persecution of Christians, Babylon streets flowing with the blood of prophets and persecution of God's holy people around the world. Revelation 18, 24, Revelation 19, 2 supports Rome's reputation to persecute Christians. So again, hey, this is not actual Babylon. Babylon is really Rome. Rome persecuted Christians, so it fits. But again, why use the word Babylon if you simply mean Rome? Why... I? I'm not a fan of like, this is being done to, to protect them from persecution because again, the rest of the New Testament they wrote and were persecuted. It, it just, I'm not, I'm not a fan of this concept here. Next, trading empire. The mention that no one bought uh, the, the cargoes of Babylon anymore, Revelation 1811, reference uh, Rome's position as a trading power. Once again, that means you can't interpret Revelation without then going studying the history of Rome. Like, unless you know the history of Rome as a trading power, you can't interpret the book of Revelation. That would require you to study Roman history to interpret Revelation. Now, if you're going to make that argument, that's fine. I'm not, by all means, I believe we need to always study historical context. It's just, 
and some of these would really require some serious study of Roman history. And, 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 and so, but there are a lot of Christians running around then. You would have to tell Christians, hey, you can't study, you can't interpret the Bible until you have extensive knowledge in ancient history, Roman, Jewish, like you've got to know the history, you've got to have extensive knowledge of the historical context. Without that knowledge, you cannot interpret the Bible. Well, try to tell that to most people who go to church. They would argue with you immediately, going, that's not true. I, I can understand it without it. This would imply that you can't. Um, Rome conquered Jerusalem just as Babylon had done. In 586 BC, Babylon decimated the city of Jerusalem, and, and most importantly, they destroyed the Jerusalem temple. Rome did a similar destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70, which might be why Rome is called Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. I mean, that's that's good conjecture. Hey, we're going to call Rome Babylon because Rome destroyed the temple just like Babylon did. But what if you can say, if you can use the word Babylon, why can't you use the word Rome? I like, it just makes, all of these arguments make like, there's just some reason they could not use the word Rome. I'm not a fan of this. I am not a fan of this interpretation. I am not a fan of this interpretation. Uh, but you you may be. Next, described as mystery. Um, in Revelation 17:5, the text says a mysterious name was written on the woman's forehead. The woman might not actually be Babylon, but instead it is a mystery of who she is, Rome. So because it's a mystery, then Babylon is just a... <laughs> I don't know. It's supposed to be a clue, but you have to look into the mystery and then you'll find out Babylon is not really Babylon. Babylon is the city of Rome. I I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, Here are some weaknesses with this view. Number one, Rome is not the only city described with seven hills. Now they don't list the other cities. That would be something to try to find out how many cities do we know of that are described as uh, a city with seven hills? I don't know if we have to look history, geography. I, I, that would be some, do, is there any other description of cities like that in the Bible? That, that would be, that would be interesting uh, to see. Number two, widespread knowledge of Rome as seven hills. If Rome was known so well as the city of seven hills, as evidence that these seven hills were even featured on Roman coin, coinage, um, then, the, then the idea John revealed Rome as Babylon with seven hills as a way to mask the identity would be faulty. Now, that's true. If everyone knows that Rome was the city with seven hills and that it even showed up on their coins, if, in other words, if, if it was that obvious, hey, the city of seven hills, that's clearly Rome, well, then why wouldn't you just use the word Rome? Like, like, no, it's a mask because you were trying to avoid persecution. How are you trying to avoid persecution? Because by identifying it with the city with seven hills, you would clearly be identifying Rome. So it'd be a waste of time to use the word Babylon. (laughs) It would be be useless. It would be a, a waste of time. That would make absolutely no sense. It says, since people in John's day knew that Rome was the city of seven hills, then John labeling of the city in that manner would, ha- would have been treasonous. In other words, it would not have protected anything, right? Next, seven hills or seven kings. The seven hills in Revelation 17, 9 through 10 seems to be non-literal, meaning they are meant to symbolize the seven kings, not seven literal hills. So if the hills are not literal, 
then you can't say, well, Rome has seven hills, and then you view it as literal. No, the hills aren't literal. The hills represent kings. So that would destroy the hills as being seen as a literal, ident- a, a, a way to identify anything. Which, which seven emperors? The idea that the seven heads, Revelation 17, 7 through 14, refers to seven literal emperors of Rome is difficult to decipher as no one knows which of the emperors to begin counting with. All right, so once again, this would be, this would be a problem going in this direction. Next, little persecution of Christians in Rome. While some Christians were persecuted under Roman rule, Others note that the persecution was sporadic and local, not the result of an official policy of persecuting Christians. So the persecution, would, would, as described, wouldn't reach the level of what actually occurred in history. I'll never forget, um, I can't remember which uh, college, I was listening to a lecture about Rome persecution of Christians, and they, they argued that it was not as severe as, as many Christian books have pointed out. And here's a Christian article making the same claim that, hey, it wasn't as, as bad as, as, as it sometimes made out to be. Not saying that it was good, but I don't know if that would fit this, this category. Geography does not match. The, uh, the, geogra- the geographical descriptions of many waters, Revelation 17.1, desert, Revelation 17.3, does not really match a description of the area of Rome. Instead, it would be more fitting for a literal description of Babylon on the Euphrates River. So there's a number of reasons this view would not work. There's a number of reasons this view would not work. So we have two views so far. Okay, who is Mystery Babylon? Who is this? Woman, who is this in Revelation 17 and 18? How do we identify them? Right? View number one, apostate Christendom or the apostate church. View number two, Rome. View number three. Okay, here we go. View number three. This is where I'm going to get a little facetious, all right? View... uh, Number three, are you ready? I know know you're going to say you're being too flippant, you're being, but I want to try to make a point here. So I'm going to be a little facetious. You ready? Remember, to be facetious, just so that everyone knows, it means I'm going to take a serious issue, and this is a serious issue. Trying to identify Babylon here is a serious issue, but I'm going to do so in a very inappropriate way, and I'm going to be somewhat flippant to try to make a point. All right, here we go. View number three. Babylon is Dallas, Texas. It's Dallas, Texas. Now, if you're just tuning in, I do not believe this at all. I'm being facetious. I'm being joking. I may, I'm doing though this in a way to try to make a point. You're like, what do you mean? It's Dallas, Texas. Well, I'm not the only one who... who would try to make this argument because I have an article that makes the same argument. I'll read their words. Well, there appears to be many alleged clear connections to the identity of Babylon being Rome, listed what we just discussed. It is important to compare a modern example. How about the city of Dallas as the identity of Babylon and Revelation 17, 18? A quick look at the text and the city of Dallas yields six points of support. Number one, Dallas, 
Numerous prostitutes, strip clubs, and evil deeds could cause it to be labeled as a house for demons. Revelation 18.2. Number two, second, the sins of this city could be piled as high as heaven. Plenty of sin in Dallas, Texas. Third, a quick look at the multi-million dollar homes in Highland Park could label the city as glorifying herself and living in luxury. Revelation 18.7. Fourth, Zell's and Tiffany jewelry stores are headquartered here and could be a connection to the buying of gold, silver, and jewels. Revelation 18, 12 through 16. Fifth, J.C. Penney is also headquartered in Dallas, and that could be a connection to the sale of fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet. Revelation 18, 12 through 16. Sixth, the seven hills of Revelation 7, of, 7, of 17, 9 could be the seven prominent suburbs of Dallas. A plan, Mesquite, Arlington, Irving, Garland, Richardson, and Frisco. <laughs> In other words, there are, there are ways to make some of this fit all kinds of different options. And you say, well, that's just ridiculous. That's just, it is ridiculous. What I'm trying to say is you could go through and go, oh, it could fit this city. It could fit this city. It could fit this city. You can make things fit. And that's something you always have to be aware of in your interpretation and your hermeneutic. Am I trying to make something fit? And you know what typically happens? You hear it again. A pastor stands behind the pulpit, gives you certainty at the expense of truth. It sounds good. And because he makes it fit. That's why you got... You have to, to, don't bring your presupposition or your interpretation to the text. Start with the text and see what fits. And sometimes you'll be left with, you know what? There's a thousand things that could fit here. Then you can't be dogmatic. You can't be certain. And that's okay. This article says it this way. Well, this might be a facetious look at the book compared to modern life in Dallas. It serves as a point that strong correlations can be made to most cities if one is allowed to infer that Babylon was a code name for another city. In other words, if you're saying Babylon is actually code for another city like Rome, you could start just putting in any city there. Now, you could make some argument. Well, obviously, it wasn't Dallas, Texas. Obviously, it. okay, I understand that, but I'm just saying that you could probably even find cities at that time when Revelation was written that would have fit as well. That's all I'm trying to say. Just trying to be a little facetious to make that point. All right, next. Next view. Oh, man, we're going to run out of time. We're not going to get to the audio. We're going to have to do a part two. Obviously, we're going to have to do a part two. All right, Jerusalem. Another view about the identity of Babylon, which is less popular, is that Babylon represents the holy city of Jerusalem. This is often the view held by preterists or partial preterists. In their view, John wrote the book of Revelation in A.D. 65, and this prophecy predicts the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So they're like, no, Babylon here, Mystery Babylon, is Jerusalem, and it was destroyed in 70 A.D. Now, the problem is you've got to try to get the dating of the book of Revelation prior to 70 A.D., and I don't think you can do that. I know there's some sources that claim you can. Most place it well after 70 AD, but that's the preterist view. Are there any strengths to this view? Seven hills. Jerusalem, in addition to Rome, was categorized by seven noble hills, notable hills. Uh, Once again, it just, there's, that's what I'm seeing. When you, when you look at some of these descriptors and you're like, okay, Babylon is not Babylon. It's something else. 
and it's another, it's a code for another city, you can start plugging all kinds of different cities into this. And this leads to major, you know, interpretive issues. The title as a prostitute, calling Babylon a prostitute and accusing the city of adultery a similar way that Israel and Judah were labeled in the Old Testament. Isaiah 1, 21, Jeremiah 3, 8 through 9, Ezekiel 20, verse 3 and verse 30, Hosea chapter 1 and 2, uh, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. So the fact that mystery Babylon is considered a whore or a prostitute would fit what well, you could make it fit for Jerusalem if you're going to use it as a code. Substantial imports, the list of substantial imports in Revelation 18, 12 through uh, 13 could also have been attributed to the trade imports typical of Jerusalem. Next, Jerusalem is guilty for the blood of the prophets. Jesus accused Jerusalem of being guilty for the blood of prophets. Matthew 23, 35, that fits perfectly. All right. Okay. Now, what's the weakness of this view? Well, the weakness here is... is there, and let me read this again. Among many weaknesses of this view, the, the, there is only one view needed to prove this view is incorrect. The mountain of evidence that clearly states that John wrote the book of Revelation in AD 95, not in AD 65. Therefore, if John wrote the book in AD 95, the identity of Babylon could not be the city of Jerusalem and its destruction in AD 70. So really, the way to, view, uh, to argue that view is just prove when the book was written. Now, I, I, there's a part of me that every day I wake up and like, please, someone find absolute dogmatic proof that the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD. Please, every day I'm hoping there's some archaeologist out there digging and they're going to go, hey, what's this? Or there's some monk in a monastery somewhere and they're like, what is this? I'm like, oh no, we've discovered Revelation was written in 65 AD. That would be, to me, one of the best biblical discoveries in history because it could argue then that Revelation was simply pointing to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and that would stop a lot of the craziness that's happened to the book of Revelation. That would be great. So far, you can't do that because the mountain of evidence seems to go against the preterist view, and we, I've taught the, pre, taught the preterist view and have explained the preterist view in many, uh, in many different settings and many different teachings. All right, next. All right, um, I think we're down to the last one. Are we down to the last one? Okay, someone says, oh, so you want to be a preterist. And so, there's time, there's, look, there's a part of me that wants to be a preterist. There, there, are, there are certain aspects of preterism that I would absolutely love. There's so many aspects to it. So what I've always tried to do, and I'll just mention this, I'm gonna, uh, but I've got to hurry. Um, I've always tried to do this. I think preterism, the strength of it is it forces us to stop always looking for a future interpretation and at least always consider, okay, here's a prophecy. Has it been fulfilled in history? Can I find a historical fulfillment for this? And if I can, then that's where I stop. So if I'm looking at like Matthew 24, where the context is clearly 70 AD, I'm going to try to connect as much of that to 70 AD as I possibly can. If I'm reading in the Old Testament and I see a prophecy, well, wait a minute. No, that was fulfilled when they went into Babylonian captivity. No, that was fulfilled when they came out of Babylonian captivity. The preterist view forces us to learn to look at prophecy as possibly have already been, has already been fulfilled from our perspective. It may have been future for the 
at the time it was written, but it's now passed for us. And so I, I do appreciate that. And in many cases, it fixes so many problems. But as we st- saw in our very long study of Matthew 24, there's parts where it seems to fall apart. And then there's other times where it seems to work really well. So, but in Revelation, it just, everything tells me it was written after 70 AD. Everything, I mean, I've tried to look at the the preterist arguments, but they have not convinced me yet of the dating of the book. I'm always willing to have my mind changed, but there we go. All right, so let's see here. The last view, Babylon. Is Babylon on the Euphrates River? <laughs> okay, I, I know that's not. This is this one. You're kind of like, wait, wait, what? I know this. This one. Listen, taking all the facts into account, the best view is that Babylon is the literal city of Babylon on the Euphrates in modern Iraq, and that it will be rebuilt in the last days. Throughout history, Babylon has represented the height of rebellion and opposition to God's plan and purposes. So God allows Babylon to continue during the final days. It's almost as though he calls her out for a final do, uh, a final fight, a final battle. Uh, but this time, the conflict between God and Babylon ends decisively. The city of Babylon will be destroyed. While this is the simplest and most straightforward view, it seems to be uncommon among scholars. In the opinion of the article that I'm reading... With so much emphasis being placed on Babylon here, it seems that the nation of Babylon is the literal city of Babylon. Now, I like this one. This one has kind of an eloquence to it, right? Hey, it says Babylon. It's Babylon. (laughs) It's the actual city of Babylon, which Babylon as a city, as a nation, has represented hostility and opposition to God and placing a, a, a basically a, a false religion, uh, a, uh, offering a false religion to the true God. Th- this one, this one's just like, no, it's going to, we don't know when, we don't know how, but it's just going to be rebuilt. It's just going to be, re- we don't know. Well, look, there's a lot of things I think in prophecy. I'll give you an example. If you go back to the early church history, one of the major arguments is, well, Israel can't be Israel. That has to be referencing the church or spiritual Israel. The church had to replace Israel because Israel doesn't exist. So any prophecies about Israel can't be talking about Israel because, no, Israel doesn't exist. So those promises have to go to the church. Well, because they thought it was over. Well, then Israel becomes a nation again. So I'm just saying just because something doesn't exist now doesn't mean it can't show back up at a later time. Now, get this gets into how do you interpret major sections of the book of Revelation and timing. and But I think this one is an interesting view. What is the strengths of this view? One, out of all the different commentaries and books on the end times, this author found Mark Hitchcock's book, The End, to provide the most clear and biblical picture of the nation of Babylon. And then this article is going to follow the material from that book. Here we go. Revelation refers to the last day's capital of the Antichrist as Babylon. While it is possible that Babylon is a code name for Rome, New York, Jerusalem, or some other world city, it's unlikely that John would do so in a way that emphasized the name Babylon so often. For example, Babylon is specifically mentioned six times in Revelation as the capital of the Antichrist. Again, there's a lot of issues we could get through this, but okay. This happens in Revelation 14.8, Revelation 16.19, Revelation 17.5, Revelation 18.2, Revelation 18.10, and Revelation 18.21. So it would just seem like, why is he using Babylon as a code name? 
And then in all these different places where he mentions it, I've got to figure out the, that that doesn't really represent Babylon. Babylon represents this city. That I, I just don't know. All right. There's no indication of a non-literal interpretation. Oh, this is interesting. When we were reading about the two witnesses in Jerusalem, John told us to symbolically interpret the city as Sodom and Egypt. Yet the reader knows that the two witnesses were not actually in Sodom and Egypt. Instead, John uses the titles of these two locations to describe the spiritual state of the city of Jerusalem. The point is, is that in Revelation 11:8, John specifically clues us in saying, hey, I'm not talking about the literal actually city. I'm using a symbol to convey meaning. Therefore, since there is no indication or hint that John, from John, that this is supposed to be a symbolic interpretation, we should let the text speak for itself, which is that it, that it is the actual nation of Babylon. Now, what they're arguing is that in other places, he clearly tells you this is a symbol. This represents this. But when it comes to Babylon, he doesn't go, hey, guys, 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 I didn't really mean that it's Babylon. It's a code. It's, it's Jerusalem. It's Rome. It's Dallas, Texas. It's New York. It's Jerusalem. What? No, I, that, I, I agree here that, there, that I think this is important. Next, Babylon is the most mentioned city in the Bible besides Jerusalem. According at least to one source, uh, scripture refers to Babylon about 300 times in the Bible. Now, someone today can verify if that is true. I think that would be a good topical study. Yeah, yeah. Should we do a topical study on Babylon? Come on, who, who's up for that? Okay, never mind. Okay, nobody is. All right. <laughs> but yeah, I think this would solve a lot of the problems here, wouldn't it? Uh, throughout the Bible, the nation of Babylon symbolizes the epitome of evil and rebellion against God. For example, in Genesis 11, uh, 1 through 11, Babylon was the city where man first began to worship himself in an organized way uh, against God. Uh, Babylon is the context was Babylon in this context was an entire anti-God system as well as a literal city. Another example is that Babylon was the capital city of the first world ruler Nimrod, Genesis 10. Furthermore, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Lastly, Babylon was the capital city of the first four Gentile world empires that rule over Jerusalem outlined in Daniel's prophecies, right? Someone just said no to the topical study. I'm very, very hurt that they're not more excited to find truth. Okay, but that's, that's all right, now we're here. All right. Oh man, there's so many. All right, I got to go through these. I, we've got to finish this part up. So just bear with me. Uh, Babylon fits the criteria for the cities described in Revelation 17 through 18. Everything described of Babylon in Revelation 17, 18 fits the criteria for an empire that would rule politically, economically, geographically, and militarily. Nothing seems out of place or difficult to interpret. The Euphrates River is mentioned twice in Revelation uh, 9, 14, and one, or once in Revelation 9, 14, and once in Revelation 16, 12. The city of Babylon straddles the Euphrates River. Four angels are described in Revelation 9, 14, being held at the Euphrates River, who are ready to go and lay waste to one-third of the world. The Euphrates River dries up in Revelation 16, 2, or Revelation 16, 12, so that massive armies can cross it and prepare for battle. These two events support the idea that evil and wickedness is cooking in the pot of Babylon. Next, the prophet Zechariah, writing 20 years after the fall of the Medo-Persia Empire, saw a future Babylon, Revelation, or Revelation, Zechariah 5, 5 to 11. The prophet Zechariah was writing his prophecy about 20 years after the fall of Medo-Persia, Medo yet he still saw a future Babylon. 
The parallels between Zechariah 5 and Revelation 17 are striking. Both include a woman sitting, uh, Zechariah 5, 7, Revelation 17, 3, 9, and 15. Emphasis on commerce, Zechariah 5, 6, Revelation 18, 13. Wickedness, Zechariah 5, 8, Revelation 17, 5. Focus on false worship, Zechariah 5, 11, Revelation 18, 1 through 3. Woman directly connected with Babylon, Zechariah 5, 10 through 11, and Revelation 17, 5. That's very interesting, those connections, which again would point to Babylon. All right. Um, Prophetic promises that Babylon would be destroyed suddenly and complete. History tells us that Babylon died a long, slow death over many centuries. Since Babylon has never been destroyed in a quick and decisive way, like the prophets predicted, it is likely that the prophetic passages of Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 50 through 51 about Babylon's sudden and quick destruction are yet to be fulfilled. That's interesting. The location of Babylon is on the Euphrates. Jeremiah's prophecy about the doom and fall of the nation of Babylon, Jeremiah 50 through 51, is one of the most severe prophecies I'm aware of. There are numerous similarities between Jeremiah 50 through 51 and Revelation 17 through 18. I won't go through all of the similarities right now. All right. Now, this we are borrowing from an article and reading extensively from an article by Christopher L. Scott, and this is found at the name of the article is Five Views on the Identity of Babylon in Revelation 17 through 18, and this was written in 2017. Now, we're going to have to stop right there. So, in summary, listen to me carefully. First, a question. What is the identity of Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, 18? How do you identify it? Too many times in churches, pastors stand behind the pulpit and say, oh, there's so much confusion and people have all these crazy theories, but it's very easy. It's this. In many cases, they're selling you, they're substituting certainty for truth. When the truth is, there's been disagreement about this forever and there are so many different views. And when you start trying to take the views apart, you can see all how much, so much, how much material there is to work through and try to figure it out. So the five views that I've given you today about the identity of Mystery Babylon is number one, apostate Christendom, the apostate church. Number two, it's Babylon is code for the city of Rome. Number three, and this is the facetious one, Babylon is code for Dallas, Texas. The reason we threw that in there is because you could really plug in any city if you work hard enough to make it work. Number four, Babylon was actually code, or uh, Babylon was code for Jerusalem. And in number five, no, it's Babylon. It's Babylon on the Euphrates River. It's the actual rebuilt city and nation of Babylon. It, it, that's, it, it says it, it's what it is. The end. That are those are five views. I could probably give you fifteen views if I work hard enough on it. But this one gave me five and just co- placed them all together. And I like the, the they use the facetious Dallas, Texas because I was I was I was not going to use Dallas, Texas. I think I was going to use Las Vegas um, because I think that I can make that work. Uh, you've got so you know Sin City. You've got glamour. You've got riches. You've got silver and gold. Yeah, but there's probably other parts of it that wouldn't work. But you could probably yeah, again you can make it work if you try hard enough. All right, we're gonna have to stop.
Here's the plan. I'm going to take a break. Probably not a long one because we're going to come right back and finish this up. This is what, this is what happened. I woke up this morning. You know what I'm going to say? I leaned over and grabbed my iPad. I hit play. And all of a sudden I heard the identity of Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, 18. And I'm like, whoa, what is, okay, what, what a way to wake up. Good morning to you as well, okay? And then I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to grab part one of this series on Babylon, and I'm going to play it for everyone. But then I'm like, you know what? That's too boring. I know what I'll do. I'll give, I'll show everyone that there's so many different views here. So what we're going to do, you've been given five views. We will review the audio and just see how, I think in, in my estimation, does he, well, you, I'll, well, I'll bring up, I'll say this. When we review the audio, you can determine, does he substitute certainty for truth? That is what we'll find out in part two, which will be coming in about 15 minutes, right? So hey, cliffhanger, right? Cliffhanger. No, you have to wait till next week. I'm sorry. We will we'll, we'll do part two next month. No, the only problem doing that in podcasting is nobody will come back to listen to part two. They won't care. But maybe if I do it in 15 minutes, they will. All right, so we'll be back. 15 minutes. Just give me 15 minutes and we'll be back. Should be fun. Be right here. We'll see what at least one pastor thinks the answer is to the identity of Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, 18. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.